We're looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. God speaks it to us. We want to see him work in us. Uh, We need him to work by his spirit. So how about we pray again as we turn our attention to it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that you you speak these words um, by your spirit. These words that Jesus spoke um, are words that come to us as yours. And please do enable us to respond with trust and confidence in you that shapes the way we think and the way we live in response to you and your Son. In him, amen. It's important to say up front, this passage is not just for married people. It's for anyone who knows a married person, And it's for anyone who lives in situations spoiled by sin. Dating may be a bubble uh, where sin seems distant, but no marriage is unaffected by sin. A man and a woman living up close with one another are going to suffer the consequences of one another's sin. They're going to feel the drive of their own self-centeredness. There are seasons when it's easy and it's sweet and it surpasses expectations and there are the other times. Too many of those times and the ones who said, I do, are ready to say, I'm done. The love which said, I will until death parts us, is ground down and replaced with something which says, I can't. Our instincts, our desire, our logic, our experience, our culture may say, just finish it. But Jesus says something else. Now, Jesus knows how difficult it can be to obey. It's easy to do what God wants us to do when what God wants us to do is exactly what we were going to do anyway. Now, it's still obedience. But perhaps it's true that we've only truly learned obedience when God calls us to something we do not want to do and we submit to his will because it is his will and we trust him. Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked to be spared the wrath stored up for him He agonized. He was full of distress and anguish and sorrow. He felt like he was already dying. But he learned obedience. He trusted his Father. He went to the cross where he bore our guilt and shame. His obedient death brought forgiveness for all who trust him. His death demonstrates his and his Father's love for us. They are entirely trustworthy. The same Jesus who promises instant forgiveness and acceptance to all who trust him, that same Jesus commands us for our good. Trusting Jesus includes trusting him that he is a better guide than our instincts, desires, logic, experience, culture. Jesus and his scriptures clear up the confusion about what is truly good. He gives his spirit to his people to strengthen and enable us so that more and more we live as is best for us and live to please him.
whether you're curious but not yet committed or committed and not yet perfect, we, we need to keep that as the context for this as we read it today. Jesus forgives. It starts there. And his commands help and enable us to see that we need that forgiveness. And they help enable us to see what a truly good life looks like. And we need the scriptures to tell us because often we wouldn't have guessed. The issue in this section is marriage and divorce, but has implications for all manner of situations spoiled by sin. We all live in those situations shaped by our past sin or by the sin of others. It can be hard to see the way through. It can seem like the only way forward is compromise. More sin. We can wonder, is it possible to live to please God in situations spoiled by sin? Divorce and remarriage were easy and common in first century Israel. Anything from adultery to angry answers to be given as a reason for a divorce, and they were frequent. There were arguments about what actually made divorce allowable, what on that spectrum. But divorce was an assumed right, and remarriage was the expected outcome. Chapter 10 begins with some Pharisees stepping out of the crowds that Jesus has been teaching, and they've come to test Jesus. They're not interested in the truth. They're, what they want to do is trap him. They don't, no, I'm not asking him what makes divorce allowable. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Does God allow any divorce? Now, in chapter 6, uh, Mark showed us John the Baptist imprisoned and eventually beheaded because he spoke out about Herod marrying his brother's divorced wife. Uh, since chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees and Herod's people have been plotting to destroy Jesus. So this looks like phase one of one of their plans to destroy Jesus. Get him to say what John the Baptist said, and we'll see where it winds, ends for him. They're not asking for information. They're not, nor are they asking Jesus for his total teaching on marriage or his total teaching on divorce. They just ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Next bunch of verses are Jesus' answer. Jesus answers by asking, what did Moses command you? Now, there's no space in Jesus' mind or in their mind between what Moses says and what God says. What Moses commands and what God commands. And to answer what God commands through Moses, they go to a law about divorce. Jesus asked what was commanded, but the most they can say is, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, the passage they're pointing to is the start of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, we'll come back and read it, all, read it all a little later, but just now, uh, notice that the bit they mention isn't actually a command. It's part of the setup for a restriction and a command. Moses says, skipping most of the words, Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if he writes her a certificate of divorce, and if she goes and marries another man's wife, goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man 
divorces her or dies, then her former husband may not take her again as his wife. And you shall not bring sin upon the land in this way. They mention the part of the setup for the command rather than the restriction on the command themselves. We'll come back and look at it properly later. Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote this command. Verse 5. They say Moses allowed. Jesus talks about the commandments. The commandment exists because of their hard hearts. Moses wrote about hard hearts in Exodus. Though he uses the words to talk about the Egyptian pharaoh who hardened his heart and refused to obey God even after he saw God doing great signs and wonders and miracles. Describes the Egyptian army as hard-hearted when they pursued the Israel into the, the space between the bits of the Red Sea divided apart. Moses didn't use the words hard-hearted to describe Israel, but he did tell their story. And their story is one of repeated disobedience and distrust. They saw the same miracles that, that Pharaoh saw. They saw many more. But still, still they disobeyed and distrusted God. Jesus says, the Lord God gave this command in Deuteronomy 24... That is a command connect, this command connected with divorce was given because of those hard hearts. It was spoken because they didn't obey the Lord God's commands. It was spoken into a situation spoiled by sin. To help them see, to see how, Jesus goes to Genesis. Uh, divorce disconnects marriage, so Jesus goes to some truth. Some truth about marriage which comes from when there were no hard hearts. The verses are on a slide, Genesis 1 and 2, bits off. No, no, there's so much in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 uh, that, that have enormous implications for marriage. I'm going to stick just with these bits that Jesus mentions. First, God made them male and female. Genesis chapter 1 moves towards God saying that all that he had made, or God saying all that he'd made, as very good. Part of that very good creation is humans made male and female. Two-part sexuality is part of God's very good creation. And Genesis chapter 2 gives us a close-up look at male and female made by God. Male and female made to partner in serving God. She made to help him. And he rejoices when he sees her. He says, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Then Genesis states the implication for humans who marry. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. This is the way it will be for all humans. Who marry because God made humans that way and for that reason. When a man and woman come together in marriage, they form a new unit. They have a new closest relative, each other. He and she are one. When Genesis says they become one flesh, it's not describing something they do, 
It's saying what God does to them. He joins them. They are united. They are put together as one before God and by God. God made marriage that way. It's always like that. Marriage didn't enter creation as a result of rebellion. Marriage isn't a human idea or a cultural construct. God made it and he made it with a purpose. Married people don't always know or care about um, God's purpose in marriage. Even those who do know will struggle to live it. But the basic pattern woven into the way that God made us is this. A man and woman leaving and holding fast and becoming one flesh. Back in Mark chapter 10, the second half of verse 8, doesn't just repeat the first half of verse 8. It's not just repeating it for emphasis. Jesus applies the fact that generally in marriage two become one. He applies it to the situation described in verse 4. So Jesus is saying, so they, the man and the woman, he wants to divorce, they are no longer two but one flesh. That's the reality. They are one flesh. They are joined by God. Is it lawful for one or both of them to break the bond? Verse 9, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't attempt to undo what God has done. Later indoors, away from the Pharisees and the crowds, Jesus' disciples ask him to explain more. Jesus explains the implications. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He's saying a divorce doesn't end a marriage. It says it does. It says the husband and wife aren't husband and wife anymore. It says they're free to marry someone else. It says it separates who God has joined, but it doesn't. If either the husband or the wife, equal opportunity, if they marry someone else, then their new marriage begins with adultery just as surely as if there was no divorce paper. The divorce doesn't undo what God has done. A divorce doesn't end a marriage. So how does that fit with Deuteronomy? It's just disagreeing with what God said through Moses. He said it was only spoken because of hard hearts. Uh, this is God's law spoken for situ in situations spoiled by sin. So let's go back and take another look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, there's so much going on, it can be tricky to follow. I've separated the sentences into sections on a slide. I've highlighted a few key words. Verses 1 to 3 are the description of the context. Verse 4 is the instruction. Uh, if this has happened and then this or this, then do this. I'll, I'll read. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, 
And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You see the basic shape? If a man divorces his wife and she marries someone else who then divorces her or dies, her first husband may not marry her again. Verse 4 says why. It's because she has been defiled. And then you need to think, what defiled her? Well, it's not the end of the second marriage because it's the same whether the second marriage ends with divorce or death. And usually there's no issue at all with widows remarrying, which means it must have been the remarriage that defiled her. It was adultery, or it began as adultery. She was still married to her first husband when it began. The divorce papers didn't separate those who got it joined. So now, at the end of the verse, verse 4, now she's free from her second marriage. The man she was united to at first, though he isn't told to take her back. In fact, he's told he mustn't take her back. They're separated and they mustn't remarry. You see, Jesus isn't stretching or undermining the teaching of Deuteronomy. He's simply reading it carefully and pushing back past the limits, past it, the limits it places on doing damage to the maximum application. I want to talk about two wider principles from this. The wider principles to grasp, often the, first, often the Old Testament laws don't describe God's ideal. They're designed to limit damage rather than to define good. Some of them are very obvious, do not murder. There are goods beyond that, not murdering people. Others pick up where sin lays off, like this one. Deuteronomy 24 is about what to do after the divorce. I take it a similar thing is going on with these commands about beating slaves from Exodus chapter 21, 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the truth, the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, it'd be ridiculous to say Moses allowed a man to beat his slaves and destroy their eyes and knock out their teeth. The command isn't saying it's okay. The command is picking up where the slave owner's sin leaves off. It's not allowing vicious beating. I think it's actually aiming to prevent vicious beating by being a deterrence. It gives a consequence when a master treats a slave as less than image of God. These others... The Old Testament laws sometimes are designed to limit evil rather than to define good. Moses doesn't allow divorce so much as put limits on the damage done. 
Second thing to say is that he holds on to as much good as possible in his situation spoiled by sin. Without endorsing sin and without pretending the situation is part of God's good ideal, these commands aim to hold on to as much good as possible. They don't define the ideal, but they aim to get as close as possible to the ideal. Sometimes it's called the retrieval ethic. It's about retrieving as much good as possible in a situation spoiled by sin. None of us live in a world unaffected by sin. None of us are unaffected by our own past sins or by the, this, the grip that sin still has on us or by the, the sins of others. God speaks to the situation we live in. Sometimes the best we can do is the least compromised thing. These laws spoken in situations spoiled by sin help us see God's way forward. God reveals what does damage and what does good. So in in situations which God's word does not directly address, we can ask ourselves, well, how do I limit damage? How close can I get to God's good plan? When we're in situations spoiled by sin and the, the on the path of perfect obedience and a perfect world of perfect relationships is not available, we can ask, how can I limit damage? How close can I get to God's good plan? I think that's what Paul is doing when he interacts and talks about the issues of um, divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to 16, if you want to look it up later. He says to Christians who are married to each other, don't divorce. Sin may make a a situation where they separate to limit damage, but not as a permanent thing, and only until they reconcile. Not as a first step to divorce and then remarriage, but as a temporary step when as close as they can possibly get to God's good plan is their determination to reconcile as soon as they can. Paul also talks to Christians who are married to non-Christians, presumably because they were converted after they married. He says to Christians who are married to non-Christians, don't divorce them. Tells them to stay with loyal love while ever the other person is willing to be married. Doing all they can so that the other person will be willing to be married. It'll be hard. He makes comment. It won't be, it makes it obvious. It won't be, won't be ideal for the, the Christian spouse. It won't be ideal for their children. But it is as close as they can get to God's good plan for marriage. It's how God calls them to live to please him and be a blessing to their non-Christian spouse. Get the vibe from those examples that the scriptures don't implement these principles in ways that just designed to make life easy. Nor are they selecting the lesser of two evils. Staying close to the good. As you apply this in other areas... It's important to stay near God's good design. 
not to stray off into something entirely different. Now, we'll often do that best in community. Uh, particularly in thinking things through with Bible teachers and church family who are less directly emotionally caught up in the situation. Sometimes it might even be better for the person who is most directly involved not to make the call. There's a danger of the mind justifying what the will chose because the heart desired. And there can also be the danger of being excessively cynical about our own desire to live to please God. Our aim must be to stay near to God's good design and not stray off into something entirely different. It's very helpful to have this framework I've been talking about because it helps us see the difference between ungodly compromises that we're tempted to make because we're unwilling to trust God and godly compromises we should make in order to please God in the situation he has placed us in. You really can please God in situations spoiled by sin. You can please him by doing all you can to limit damage and to hold on to as much good as possible. Now, there's so much more to say from the scriptures about marriage and divorce. Very touching about marriage in some ways. There are nuances to explore about divorce, including when a believer may be free to remarry. But those are edge cases, and they're beyond what Mark 10 is, is focused on. It's focused on permanence. Marriage situations spoiled by sin include everything from adultery and, 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 and abandonment to physical, social, emotional abuse to boredom, frustration, miscommunication. Any and all of those are things we can talk about with one another. As church family, there should be zero surprise to hear brothers and sisters struggling with sin and its consequences. Zero approval of sin, complete acceptance and commitment to one another. As we prayerfully aim to help one another keep in step with the Spirit and not lose heart and live to please our Heavenly Father, the way forward in living to please God will not always be obvious. Mostly as rough shape will be. As we see it, the problem usually really isn't knowing what God calls us to. It's trusting him that he's good in calling us to it. If you are struggling, I hope there's some of us who you know well enough to speak about your struggles. By which I mean knowing well enough to know that the gospel will shape our response to your struggle, our advice, our input, our prayers. It can be enormously helpful to hear brothers and sisters sympathetically affirming you in your determination to live to please God. And brothers and sisters, if someone speaks their struggles to you, well, that is your job. 
to sympathize, by which I mean, by all means, like, I mean sympathize with the struggle, but and being careful not to sympathize in ways that approve of sin, but not to pretend you're not someone who's tempted. To sympathize and to affirm your brother or sister in their determination to trust our good and loving Father. Help them think through what is the wise and godly way forward. Help them see it's good. Perhaps that will include anecdotes about situations where others have struggled to trust God and have trusted Him and it's worked out well. It might include discussing how, discussing how Satan's lies always fail. Certainly, it will include pointing to our Father's goodness, His love displayed in sending His Son to suffer for us. Sympathize, affirm brothers and sisters in the determination to trust God is good and loving and pray. Ask God to work in them by his spirit. Ask God to work in the situation that he's placed them in. In situations spoiled by sin with hearts where sin still has a significant influence. Obedience will rarely be easy. Living to please God, our Father, may involve enormous costs carried over years and decades. But His will for us truly is for our good. His commands are an overflow of His love that desires our good. Our obedience to Him speaks His glory and brings him pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we see you clearly when we see your son. When we see him going to the cross in humble obedience before you, because of your love, because of his love, and his trust in you that you're truly good. Thank you that... You have brought forgiveness in him. Thank you that he did bear our guilt and take our shame. Thank you that he speaks and rules for our good. Please give us humble hearts to be shaped by the truth you speak. To trust you, our God, who speaks it. Father, we pray that we would be a church family where in areas of marriage, in areas of other struggles, in areas where it's difficult to work out what's best, in areas where it's clear what's best and difficult to do it, that we'd stand with and support one another, that we'd see you continuing your good work, that we would indeed keep in step with your spirit, not lose heart, but rather live to please and honor you while we wait the return of your Son. As in him we pray. Amen.